And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I invite you to pray with me, and you may hear my voice also is struggling a little bit, so I would appreciate if you would pray for me that God would sustain me and my voice as I preach this morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to slow our hearts settle our hearts, focus our minds this morning to receive from you what you have for us in your word. I pray that you would help me, Lord, to clearly re-speak the truth that you've made available to us, and I pray that your spirit would be active this morning to accomplish all that you intend, Lord, to ignite faith in all of our hearts, to see and to believe and to experience all that you have made available to us and came to bring us through the coming of Jesus at Christmas time. Pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> the title of the message this morning is What Angels Long to Say. And we are looking at a message delivered by angels on the very first Christmas day. The message that the angels bring marks both the fulfillment and the inauguration of God's promised plan to rescue and redeem the world from the power of sin and Satan. It's the plan that we first glimpsed just a few uh, weeks or months ago when we preached Genesis 3.15, when God says that the seed The offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. It's the plan that we see unfolding through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God sets apart a people for himself who will live in relationship with him by faith and through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a plan that we see confirmed through Moses as God demonstrates his power to deliver his people from bondage through the blood of a spotless lamb. And it's the plan that gains gains form and contour and color through more than 600 years of prophetic promises that we heard referenced in Kenny's message last week. A conquering king, a suffering servant, a new covenant, a small, obscure village in the outskirts of Jerusalem, a virgin, a baby, all pointing to this moment, 
the fulfillment of God's promises and the beginning of a new day in redemptive history. This morning we are going to look at three grace-exalting, gospel-magnifying, faith-igniting attributes of the message that the angels delivered on that first Christmas evening more than 2,000 years ago. Attribute number one, the recipients of the message. Attribute number two, the tone of the message. Attribute number three, the substance of the message. Let's look first at the recipients of the message. Now, if you've been around churches, including this one, at Christmas time, you've almost certainly heard some common anecdotes about shepherds at the time of Jesus. How they were dirty and uneducated, how they were societal outcasts among the lowest social class of the day, how they were notoriously untrustworthy and their, and their testimony wasn't even accepted in court. Now, these claims may well be true, although there are at least some questions about the accuracy and historical support for them. The bigger problem, I think, with these anecdotes, though, is that they are so familiar to us that they don't actually help us anymore, or many of us, to get inside the, the truth and the power that this passage wants to communicate to us. Now, this is an extraordinarily significant moment in the history and timeline of humanity. We might say it is the most significant moment, at least since the fall, in the whole history of the world. This is, in in a way, the grand opening of God's promised plan of salvation. He has rolled out the red carpet... And we can be sure that the guest list he invites has significance. In the same way that a director might invite a certain focus group or some certain focus groups to the premiere of a movie, or a developer might invite key community members to the opening, grand opening of a development project, or a president might invite key constituent groups to his inauguration God has chosen a particular group of people to be in the front row seats as he unveils his redemptive purposes. The question we have to answer is, why shepherds? Now, there is a consistent thread that flows through all of God's revelation about his character and his plan for redemption. We see it clearly in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We see it again in Isaiah 61.1. This is the passage that Jesus will read just a few chapters later when he inaugurates his public ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. We see it in Psalm 138 verse 6. 
David writes, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. From afar. Over and over again, whether through direct revelation like we've just read or through symbolic illustration, God shows that his grace is available to anyone who would receive it, but it can only be received by those who recognize that they are desperately poor and in need of it. Let me say that again. Over and over again, God shows that his grace is available to anyone who would receive it, but it can only be received by those who recognize that they are desperately poor and in need of it. See, we might be tempted to conclude from some of those passages that I just read that God loves the poor more than the rich. Or that he shows unique preference for the poor and lowly and outcast compared to the rich, successful, and powerful. But that wouldn't be correct. That's not the point. The point is that all of us, rich, poor, strong, weak, more talented, less talented, more successful, less successful, more powerful, less powerful, more popular, less popular. All of us, in reality, are desperately poor, pitifully weak, and infinitely needy in in relation to God's grace. We have absolutely nothing to offer God that would make us deserving of his favor. And in reality, we are worse than the servant that Brandon preached about a few weeks ago that was in debt to his master for more than 200,000 years worth of wages. We're worse off. We are all desperately poor, pitifully weak, and infinitely needy. But the remarkable reality that we find over and over again in the Bible is that our need actually inclines God to draw near to us rather than run from us. Do you know that? The problem, though, is that we are hardwired, all of us, to try and build up a sense of self-worth and value based on our achievements and accomplishments. What we do, what we have, what people think of us, what we think of ourselves. And to make matters worse, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others to try and jockey for a higher assessment of value in relation to other people. We look for every possible way we can add to our own self-worth by edging out someone next to us. Because if I'm a little better than the guy or girl next to me, then I can just that means I have more value. I don't have to be the best, but at least I'm better than them. And I'm not just talking about how much money you have or how big your house is or what kind of car you drive. This works its way into every crevice of our hearts. How good of a father or mother I am. How much I serve at church. How many people laugh at my jokes 
how competent I am at my job. Anything and everything that we value in terms of external achievement can and does become an opportunity to add to my value, to justify myself. So it's really hard for us when grace comes knocking at our door with a sales pitch that goes something like this. Hey, are you desperately poor, helpless, needy, weak, incapable of saving yourself? Well, I've got good news for you. What? What are you talking about? I mean, yeah, no, I'm not perfect, but look at all these accomplishments I've stacked up over here. And, and, I mean, have you seen that guy? I'm at least better than him. No, I'm not helplessly needy. I'm, I'm fine on my own, thanks. And the more external accomplishments we have, the easier it is for us to believe that we really are capable of managing on our own. So over and over again, God chooses to accomplish his greatest work through people that the world judges as having little to offer and little or no value. Not because he loves them more, but to show that they are every bit as valuable to him as those that the world judges as great. That's why I don't think it matters so much whether the shepherds are the lowest, vilest outcasts of the day or whether they're just honest, hardworking, blue-collar folks. What's more important is who they aren't. They aren't the rich, powerful elites. They don't have anything to offer by the standards that we typically judge. They are not the people that we are supposed to look at and say, oh yeah, that makes sense why those would be the first people that God would choose to reveal the most significant news in all of human history. God has nothing to gain by choosing them, which is exactly why his choice demonstrates so clearly the wonder of his grace. Sarah and I have recently been watching the latest season of The Crown. If you're not familiar with it, it's a kind of biographical series based on the lives of the modern British family. The current season covers the period around the death of Princess Diana. It was a terrible tragedy. Many of you probably remember it. And the outpouring of grief and love and support that followed her death was unique in its scope and intensity. It was, her funeral was the third most watched TV event in, in history. More than two and a half billion people tuned in to watch it live. And tens of millions more came and brought flowers and gifts and cards to Buckingham Palace to express their love and appreciation for her. And it's not hard to see why she received so much attention. By the standards that the world measures greatness, she was remarkable. 
beautiful, powerful, rich, glamorous, charming, by all accounts kind and down to earth in a way that made people feel like they could relate to her. She was a generous philanthropist. She raised millions of dollars to support charities. And I think the fact that she died such a sudden death at the prime of her life, leaving behind two children, added to the shock of her death and the response to it. But the reality is that there are thousands of tragic deaths every day. Mothers, fathers, children. 10,000 children a day die of hunger and malnutrition, malnutrition alone. And on the whole, the world doesn't really take notice, certainly not in the way that it did for Diana. The question that this raises for me is, why does the world assign so much value to some people's lives and so little to others? Now stick with me here because my point is not to lay a guilt trip on you or to condemn the people that cared so much about Princess Diana. That, I don't think that's the problem. The problem is that we all ascribe far too little to every human life. And we value lives in the wrong way. We assign value based on what people do and accomplish. But even the highest value a person could possibly attain in this world through achievement and accomplishment, fame and glory, money and power, all of these accomplishments are nothing compared to the value that God puts on every single human life. How do I know that? Well, among other things, it's a passage that Kenny referenced last week, Luke 15.10. It's a passage that... It's another passage about angels. I don't think I have it on the slides. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I don't know for certain, but I would bet my life that the outpouring of grief and love for Princess Diana does not compare to the outpouring of joy in heaven for every single sinner who receives God's grace in salvation. Every single one. Hundreds, thousands, maybe 10,000 times a day, heaven erupts in joyful praise because one single, poor, needy, desperate sinner has been added to God's eternal family. No matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter how much value the world assigns to their life, all of heaven erupts with joy because one, each one of those desperate, needy sinners is infinitely valuable to God. Let's look next at the tone of the message. We see in verse 9 and 10, there is a dramatic shift in the mood of this moment as the angels appear in what the text describes as the glory of the Lord. 
I think we can easily understand and relate to the initial response of the shepherds. The Greek text is literally translated that they were afraid with great fear. I mean, this is a dramatic and totally extraterrestrial experience, to use Kenny's language from last week. You know, we at least have, like, movies and TVs where we see, like, imagined versions of this kind of supernatural occurrence. But if we put ourselves in the place of a first-century shepherd sitting out in a field at the, in the middle of the night, I'm 100% sure that even now, you and I would be completely terrified uh, by this magnificent supernatural uh, being appearing out of nowhere. But even beyond the physical shock of this extraterrestrial encounter is the deep terror that existed in the mind of every God-fearing Jew about the coming into the presence of the glory of God. From Moses at the burning bush to Isaiah's vision of God's throne to the high priest who entered the Holy of Holies, the, the, the most holy place in the temple, once a year with a rope tied around his waist, just in case if he had an impure thought while he was there and dropped dead. The presence of God's, the presence of God and his glory was something to be feared, not something to be excited about. But remember, this message marks the beginning of something new. God is coming, yes, but not to condemn and destroy. So in just a few words, the mood changes dramatically from dreadful terror to overwhelming joy. Charles Spurgeon, speaking on this verse, says, Every word is emphatic, as if to show that the gospel is, above all things, intended to promote and will most abundantly create the greatest possible joy in the human heart wherever it is received. Let me read that again. Every word is emphatic. Good news, great joy. As if to show that the gospel is above all things intended to promote and will most abundantly create the greatest possible joy in the human heart wherever it is received. Good news of great joy. God has come to fulfill all of his promises. He's come to destroy the power of sin and Satan that's held humanity in bondage since the fall. He's come to take the penalty of sin that has separated humanity from God and condemns us to eternal death. And yes, he will come again to once and for all remove the presence of sin and renew all things. Good news of great joy. We talk a lot about joy at Christmas time. <clears throat> and for sure, there are a lot of things, a lot of fun and exciting things to enjoy this time of year. But it's important that we don't confuse, even in small and subtle ways, the joy that the angels announced on that first Christmas evening with the warm, happy feelings that the holidays, the holidays offer us today. The joy that the angels announce is not primarily the joy of giving and receiving gifts. 
It's not primarily the joy of gathering with friends and family. It's not primarily the joy of good food and drink. It's not primarily the joy of singing Christmas carols around the fireplace. You know that. But I say it's not primarily the joy that comes from those things because we can never get to true joy, the true joy of Christmas, by means of any of those things. In fact, the more that we chase after them as the source of true joy and satisfaction, the less joy and satisfaction they bring. I know you've experienced that to be true. Maybe you're experiencing it now. It's like drinking salt water. It satisfies for a moment, but it actually sucks the water out of your body, leaving you more thirsty in the end. And if you keep drinking it, it'll kill you. Some of us are slowly killing the joy that God has made available to us in Jesus because we're drinking the salt water of things that can never truly satisfy. But here's the good news, friends. God really, really, really wants you to experience joy. Great joy. And not just at Christmas time. Every day of your life and for all eternity. See, the message that the angels bring didn't go like this. Decent news. <laughs> now, it's going to be a little bit of a bummer at first because you're going to have to give up some of the fun things that you like. But don't worry, when you die and go to heaven, it's going to be great. It's not the message that they brought. Good news, great joy. And while it's not possible to get to that great joy by means of the enjoyable things that Christmas offers us, it is possible to enjoy the good things that God provides to us more when we enjoy them in and through and to the one who is the source of true joy. Let me say that again. It's not possible to get to true joy, great joy, by means of all of the things that the culture, holiday culture offers to us. But it is possible to enjoy the good things that God has provided to us more when we enjoy them in and to and through the source of true joy. <clears throat> I want to make one very simple point of application before we move to our last point. And this is really like the lowest of the low-hanging fruit in terms of application. But I think it's a very simple way to turn our hearts towards Christ as we navigate some of the temptations that this season brings. 1 Timothy 4.4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if... It is received with thanksgiving. So one very practical thing you can do to enjoy God's gifts for his glory is to thank God for every possible thing you can during this Christmas season. Thank him for the time that you have with friends and family, even if there's tension and conflict and it doesn't go the way that you had hoped. 
Thank him for the money that you use to buy gifts for friends and family, even however small or humble they are. Thank him for the gifts you receive from friends and family, even if it's not exactly what you had hoped for. Thank him for the good food and drink you enjoy. Thank him for the lights that you see. Thank him for the songs that you sing. Thank him for time off of school and work. Thank him for extra sleep if you're able to get some. Whatever you enjoy or plan to enjoy this Christmas season, stop for a moment in your heart, or better yet, out loud, thank God for providing that thing to you. And anytime you feel yourself becoming angry or disappointed or dull, find something, anything, that you can express thankfulness for. Outdo yourself in being thankful. Go buck wild in giving thanks. It costs you nothing. But see if it doesn't impact the posture of your heart as you navigate both the joys and disappointments of this Christmas season. And if, for some reason, you feel resistance in your heart about thanking God for something that you're doing or planning to do, that might be an indication that you shouldn't be doing that thing. (laughs) Or that you should take some time to slow down and reorient your heart before moving on with what you had planned. If you can't thank God for the drink you're about to have, or the food you're about to eat, or the third movie you're about to watch, or the fourth hour of video games you're about to play, or scrolling Instagram for another 20 minutes, whatever it is, it may be the Spirit of God helping you to see that that thing actually is going to rob you of true joy. It's salt water for your soul. Give it a try. If I'm wrong, you can tell me about it later. (laughs) Let's move to the last point, the substance of the message. We all know what's coming in verse 11. It's the climax of every... Nativity play and the history of nativity plays. Even a Charlie Brown Christmas. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Why is this such good news? How will it produce such great joy? Because, verse 11 tells us, a Savior has been born to you. What I want to highlight in this last point is the personal emphasis that this first gospel message brings. Unto you is born a Savior, is what the angel says. To you and for you, a Savior, the Christ, has come into the world. The Savior didn't come in a general way for a generic people. He came for people in particular, and the particular people that he's come for is you. Are you? And some agreement in there somewhere. The good news of the Savior's coming is available to all people. We see that right there in the text. But you can only receive the salvation that he brings if you receive him as your Savior. Now, at the risk of belaboring this point, I want to just press in just a little bit more to be crystal clear about what I mean. 
We cannot get any benefit from the salvation that Jesus offers by acknowledging him in a general way. You can believe that Jesus was a real person. You can believe that he was a great teacher. You can even believe all of the historical truths about Jesus that have been enshrined in centuries of doctrinal statements and creeds. That he's fully God and fully man. That he was born of a virgin. That he lived a sinless life. That he was crucified on a Roman cross to take the penalty for our sins. That he rose on the third day. That he ascended into heaven. And that he will return to judge the earth and restore all things. You can intellectually believe all of those things. And you can acknowledge them as true and even try to live a good moral life as a result of them. And what I'm telling you this morning, because it's what the Bible says, is that if you have not seen your own personal need for a Savior, that you are desperately poor and needy. And if you have not come to Jesus as the only one who can save you, and believe that he came particularly to you and received the salvation, the offer of salvation that he has for you, then you have not yet experienced the good news that the angel delivered on that first Christmas day. John 10.27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And ask the band to return. <clears throat> Friends, the same message that the angels delivered in that small, to that small group of shepherds 2,000 years ago is the message that I'm delivering to you this morning. A Savior has come to you. The Savior. The one that your heart longs for. The one that knows you personally and intimately, who loves and values you infinitely. The one who is uniquely able to satisfy you and offers true, lasting, overflowing, unshakable joy. The one who was born in the stable came for you. And if you hear his voice calling you this morning, you have an opportunity to experience for the first time the true joy that Christmas is meant to bring. Please don't miss that opportunity. I or any of the pastors would love to talk to you after the service, or if you came with a friend, I'm sure that they would love to talk to you more about what it means to receive the gift of salvation that Jesus came to bring. But for those of us who have heard his voice and tasted the joy that he offers, Hebrews 3.14 offers us a warning and an encouragement this Christmas season. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We are all prone to wander, inclined to drift, likely to be lulled into spiritual dullness and drowsiness, particularly when we are surrounded by and, and bombarded by shiny things that offer us cheap pleasure and instant gratification. 
Let the angel's message be a reminder to us this morning and this Christmas season. The joy that you desire can only be found in one place. And let's make our ambition this season to maximize our joy in our Savior Jesus and allow that joy to fuel worship and thankfulness as we enjoy all the good gifts he provides. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have been so clear to us in your word. You've come to bring us true joy. You've come to rescue us, to save us. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would ignite faith in each of our hearts to see that and to believe that and to truly experience that this morning and throughout this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.